please stand for the reading of God's word? We continue in our study of the book of Judges, and we pick up in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Yair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Yair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Please pray with me. Lord, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds tonight to hear and to be changed by the, by the preaching and the studying of your word. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if uh, how familiar you are with the uh, Lord of the Rings series. Uh, But there is an interesting, well actually the Peter Jackson version has lots of interesting scenes because he uh, did a good rendition of a a really well-written story. But one of the memorable scenes, if if you're familiar with the series, is the elf princess Galadriel and her meeting with the humble hobbit from the Shire, Frodo. And she invites him to look into the mirror of Galadriel. 
And because this was written by Tolkien, uh, it's not just an ordinary mirror. Uh, this is, in fact, a, a special basin into which is poured special water uh, in, in, the, um, wood, uh, in the realm of the woodland elves. So there's a ton of magic and things going on. And when you look into the, uh, the water in this basin, you begin to, to see things. You begin to see things that have been, things that will be, things that may be. And Galadriel gives this warning to Frodo, seeing is both good and perilous. And looking into the word of God, which the book of James compares to a mirror, is both good and perilous. It is good in that we find comfort. It can be perilous because sometimes it stings us with the knowledge of our sin and our shortcomings and our failings. But even that is ultimately good. So, as we look into the, uh, the Israelites doing it again, uh, we need not to look at them as our spiritual inferiors, but look at them as examples, to, to look at them as we look in the mirror and perhaps even see ourselves in this. So where we are in the book of Judges, we're at an interim point. There's a good bit of scripture devoted to the illegitimate usurper Abimelech, a murderer and a tyrant, who is finally done in, interestingly, by a wound to the head delivered by a woman. And uh, there's a darkly comical scene where he says, please kill me now. He says this to his armor bearer, so nobody can say that a woman killed me. And so his armor bearer obliges, probably didn't like him either. And, uh, and that's the end of, uh, of Abimelech. So as we open with, after Abimelech, there's almost a wiping of the brow, like, oh, that's over. And, um, and where we are, we lead into the, uh, the last part of chapter 10, and chapter 11 leads us to one of the better-known judges, Jephthah, who will free the land from the Ammonites. Uh, they are among the people that are oppressing Israel. And as we read in verses 10, 1 through 5, we meet two judges about whom very little is said. It's a little bit like studying American history and discovering that somebody named Rutherford B. Hayes and someone else named Chester A. Arthur were presidents of the United States. But they were one-term presidents. They served after the Civil War, and uh, they served before the Spanish-American War, so very little is, is known about them. And so we, we come upon these two men who together judge Israel for a period of 45 years. And we don't see much about them. It, it seems that Yair was perhaps a little more prominent. He had 30 sons, so uh, presumably he had more than one wife. And he had, uh, his sons rode donkeys, and that's a sign of royalty in the Middle East, and especially in the Old Testament era. So he had 30 sons who achieved a, a measure of, at least for their time, importance and notoriety. But what we do see otherwise is that these were two ordinary men. And there's a, a lesson here to us that it is okay to be ordinary and to be not famous, as long as you are faithful in your ordinariness and faithful in your obscurity, because we all live before an audience of one. We all should be striving to honor God, whether we're little known or well known, whether we have uh, 
10 followers on our YouTube channel or a million followers on our YouTube channel. I kind of lean towards 10. But, um, but anyway, the, uh, the thing is to be faithful in the calling that God has given you and uh, to leave the, the results up to him. After all, it's a heavenly reward that counts, uh, not the uh, temporary reward of fame and notoriety here. So yes, it's okay to be normal and ordinary as long as you're faithful in your ordinariness. We move on to the central part of chapter 10, and this is the, uh, the recurring theme of the book of Judges. And this has been uh, repeated many times. Any course you ever take on Judges, you're going to be introduced to the cycle of sin. I, I was taught one that alliterates. And then when the uh, Israelites sin, they enter into a period of suffering. And that suffering provo- provokes them to supplication, to prayer. And then there is a period of salvation when God raises up a judge. But then you enter into sin again and then into the suffering and and so forth. And I had one teacher tell me, this isn't so much a cycle as it is a spiral. Because as the Israelites go through this process, things get worse. And by the end of the book of Judges, and I'm I'm sorry to give any plot spoilers here, but by the time you get to the end of of, of the book of Judges, there is a civil war and the near extinction of the tribe of Benjamin. So things really, really do bottom out before we move into the era of the the kings of, of Israel and of Judah. And... What's really interesting here is in Judges 10.6, you read this, the people of Israel did again, uh, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the actual reading is in the eyes of the Lord. And th- this offers an interesting contrast because two times in Israel, uh, in Judges, we see the, the, theme, uh, the theme verse of the book of Judges. And uh, that appears twice. In, in the book of Judges, and there was no king in Israel in those days. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So what the Israelites were doing by lapsing into their sin was right in their eyes because it is always easy to justify sin in your own eyes. Yet it was evil in God's eyes. So you see the contrast there, right in the eyes of the Israelites, wrong and evil in the eyes of God. And so God is provoked. The imagery here is to a burning anger and uh, one where perhaps you've either experienced uh, being in the presence of someone with burning anger or perhaps you were so angry yourself over something you actually felt yourself physically growing warmer and the shape of your face changed or the person that was in your presence. And there's no mistaking anger when you see it. It's it's, uh, pretty, pretty clear and obvious. And this is the way God's anger is described in this passage, a burning anger and an anger that that changes the shape of the face. So God sells them to the very people whose gods they, they worship. And so where Tola and Yair had been faithful to their calling, after those men passed away and after their influence diminished and was forgotten, the Israelites had proved faithless where these two judges before them had proved faithful. 
And so they had forgotten their calling, which goes all the way back to Leviticus before the entry into the promised land, before the conquest under Joshua, who was an excellent leader, who for the most part led well, was a godly man who was faithful and one whom God blessed for his efforts. Before we even get to Joshua, the Lord tells the people of Israel this, for I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God has redeemed his people, not just to deliver them out of trouble, but to make them a people like himself, a people that reflects him. And this even goes all the way back to Genesis where man is created in the image of God and for what purpose? To reflect the glory and the honor of God in a way that no other created being can. And ever since the fall of man, that has been marred and that ability has been broken and and diminished and shattered by sin. It's the case with the Israelites, and that's the case with you and with me. And so, in verses 8 and 9, we read that the people of the land, people, groups whom the Israelites have uh, uh, blended in with, uh, instead of remaining distinct and holy, they have, in fact, joined in with the people of the land in, in the worship of their false gods. And these are no small things, as uh, the people of Israel will again lapse, um, even during the era of the kings of Israel and Judah, they will lapse again. The worshiping of these false gods involves rites that are, uh, that are defined by, by immorality and on a big scale, and sometimes involve the sacrifice of infant children. So these are not just little sins. These are very, very significant sins that the Israelites have fallen into because instead of remaining distinct, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. From the people of the land, they have become just like the people of the land. And there's a big lesson to you and me. Are we distinct from the people around us or are we un, uh, unidentifiable among the people among us? Are, are we any different from the people among us in, in a good way, in a, in a godly way? So they are, uh, the the Hebrew indicates that they are crushed, uh, shattered and crushed by their sin and sorely distressed by their enemies. It is impossible to sin and for there not to be consequences. It can be anything in the form of guilt or the consequences that follow that sin. And as an added point of irony, the people of Israel are suffering in Gilead. That was the home of Yair. And they are suffering in Ephraim, the, uh, the home of Tola, whose presence is long gone and the influence is, is no more. And now that the Israelites have relapsed into their sin, those places that were perhaps associated with these little known but uh, faithful judges has uh, now... Uh, been associated with their sin and with their judgment. Now, there's an interesting passage in Numbers 32, and it comes from a discussion between Moses 
and the leaders of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. This is before the entry into the promised land. And the children of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh want to uh, return to uh, their own land. And they, there's, a, there's an issue with this because Moses is concerned if they don't go over with Israel, that's going to dishearten Israel. And instead of the Israelites moving into the promised land and conquering it, they will move into the promised land and become conquered. And so Moses has a pretty stern negotiating with them, and they say, look, we promise to go over and to fight with our brother Israelites. It's just once the land is conquered, we want to return here and establish our homes. And so the, um, uh, Moses uh, agrees to the deal, but gives them this warning, and this is the context of the passage, be sure that your sin will find you out. Now, the specific context is Moses is warning the leaders of these tribes, if you fail, your sin will find you out and you will pay the consequences. But there's a very general application to this. Your sin will find you. And it's, it's as if sin is a being that is actively stalking and seeking your destruction. And so if we play with sin, if we play with unrepentant sin, it will find us out some way or another and we will be exposed as sinners, and uh, we will pay the consequences of that. Now, how long does it take the Israelites to catch on? According to verse 10 of our passage, it takes 18 years of suffering before they finally go before the Lord, and they say, we have sinned against you. Now, it's a little hard to discern for sure here, but you and I know uh, just from our own experience and from dealing with, uh, with people, there's a big difference between being sorrowful over doing wrong and being sorrowful over getting caught. And uh, perhaps in your childhood, you can remember an episode like that. I uh, do remember a disciplinary episode in my own household, and the complaint was, I wouldn't be in trouble if he didn't tell on me. And the answer was, you wouldn't be in trouble if you hadn't hit him. So that was, uh, again, you, you see that difference. And so it seems from the context of this passage, Israel is sorry that they're suffering, not necessarily sorry that they've sinned. So in verses 11 through 14, God reminds them, this is what I have done for you. And that should have reminded them from that passage from Leviticus 11.45. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy because I am holy. And, uh, and so then he tells them this. You have chosen these gods. Why don't you cry out to them and let them deliver you? And the, uh, this might bring to mind the well-known passage from Romans chapter 1 where uh, not just, uh, well, this is referring specifically to, to the Gentiles, but it talks about how they have the knowledge of God in creation, but they have willfully rejected that and, and are in, in the present tense rejecting and suppressing the knowledge of God. And because they are determined to continue in, your, in their sin, Romans one twenty four says God gave them up. 
Romans 1.26 says God gave them up. Romans 1.28 says God gave them up. And so there's a point at which God gives people over to their sin. A Puritan author I read some years ago mentioned that this is God's greatest judgment, not intervening, but letting people continue in their sin. And uh, it is by his mercy that he intervenes and draws us out of that and causes us to repent of that. But otherwise, there's a point where people can be so willful and so stubborn in their sin that God delivers them over to their sin. But in verses 15 through 16, we read this, that the Israelites, they confess, they surrender, and they repent, and they put away their gods. Now we don't have sorrow over the consequences. We seem to have real sorrow over the sin. And we read something here because as harsh As the judgment of God can be, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. God never steps on his people and says, well, there, you deserve it. I'm going to get rid of you and start over with somebody else. God offers this, that at the end of this passage, he is moved by their helplessness and their suffering. Uh, The reading is literally that his soul became short indicating he was impatient and that now that they have genuinely repented, God is going to act on their behalf. God is going to restore the fortunes of Israel because of their repentance. So because their repentance is real, God is going to have compassion and God always has compassion. I want to uh, take a quick look look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, and this is a reminder of the degree to which uh, God identifies with our suffering and with our weakness. And we have this in reference to Jesus in Hebrews 4.14, we read, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus in his humanity lived in a fallen order. He lived in a fallen creation around fallen people. He knew what it was to grow up in an environment surrounded by sin. The primary difference between him and us is he never gave in to it. But he understands in his humanity what it is to be tempted. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you know your Old Testament history a little bit, that line about let us draw near to the throne of grace must have been shocking to its first hearers because to simply walk into the holy of holies whether it was in the tabernacle or whether it was in the temple was to invite instant death and two of Aaron's sons suffered exactly that for their irreverence but because of Christ who already sits at the right hand of God we are invited to walk in and find not judgment but mercy And so we are not only invited in, we are called in to find mercy because this is the dominant characteristic 
of God. It is his mercy and his desire to take undeserving people like you and me and restore them to himself and say, I will be your God, you will be my people. Moving on to, uh, to this, I, I do want to pause for a second on this issue of, uh, of sin and sorrow. There's an interesting passage, 2 Corinthians 7.10, where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Now, the uh, first Corinthians, Paul is really beating them up about their sin. It's, it's pretty bad. And he, is, he identifies them as saints at the beginning of his letter in First Corinthians, perhaps to remind them of their position and their status in Christ. And there's some things they need to change to start acting like saints again. And so he has to deal with division. He has to deal with immorality. He has to deal with infighting and pride and uh, some really significant sin. But the Corinthians repent. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to them about godly grief and worldly grief, or in the King James, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he makes this distinction, godly sorrow or godly grief over sin, that leads to repentance and that has a hopeful end, that leads to life. But worldly sorrow leads to death because worldly sorrow has no hope. Worldly sorrow is you failed and that's all you are. Godly sorrow is I have failed, please redeem me. And there's hope at the end of that. And so what a blessing it is to know that God offers us an awareness, a consciousness, a sorrow over our sins, but with a good end with reconciliation at the end, with being drawn to him, with being restored to him, with being set right in him, with having our sins forgiven. And that is a, a complete difference from the, the sorrow over sin that leads to despair. So be encouraged if you're feeling sorrowful over your sin. That's a good thing. But uh, sorrow with hope that God will restore, that God will bless, that God will uh, put you back where you belong now, as we look at this passage in Judges, in fact, as we read the book of Judges, um, as we read the Old Testament, you know, as we read the New Testament, uh, we see this recurring theme. Um, it's so easy to criticize the Israelites under Moses. They saw these miracles that God said, I'm not going to do this again, and I've never done this before, and you're the generation that's going to walk out of Egypt, and you're going to see great manifestations of God's power. And uh, some short time later, they're faithless again. We go through Judges, and we see the, the cycle where Israel repeats their faithlessness. We move to the New Testament. Everybody's favorite to pick on is the Pharisees because they're so judgmental. And so we, uh, wherever you are on the political spectrum of, of the Christian faith, left, right, or whatever, uh, the, the, the Pharisees are everybody's favorite to, to call out. And uh, often uh, without seeing the irony of, of that. And uh, we can look at the disciples and think, what is wrong with you people? You've seen Jesus' miracles and he just fed this many people and now you're concerned he can't feed that many people and, and so forth. And so... Um, Again, we need to look at these not as something to look at and to scoff at and to sneer at, but to, uh, to look at and see ourselves, look for ourselves in this, because we are those Israelites, we are those Pharisees, we are those disciples. And uh, here's the issue with us and with them, we're all so human, 
all made in the image of God, all made to reflect the glory and honor of God, all capable to a degree of doing good things, but always entangled and marred by sin and motivated by sin. And so we have this mixed nature that, it, that we're constantly tripping over. And uh, as we read in... Um, in, in the book of Hebrews, uh, to lay aside the sin that what? So easily entangles. When we moved into our new house a little over 20 years ago, the, uh, the backyard had been somewhat neglected and uh, there were some vines growing up on the trees. And in one case, there was a small vine growing around one of our trees that was about as big around as your little finger. So cutting it and uprooting it was no problem and it it did nothing to the tree because it was little and we were able to cut it when it was early uh, in its growth. There was another vine that was very advanced in its growth and it started to grow and in several places, almost looking like like a a giant rib cage, was... uh, growing thicker and thicker around the trunk of the tree in several places and was beginning to grow into the bark of the tree and would certainly kill it. It was a very hard vine to get rid of. In fact, I I cut the vine. I had to uproot it twice because it sprouted back. And I just had to wait until the vine just died and fell off. Took about a year, maybe two years, um, before this giant rib cage just kind of fell on the ground. I tossed it in the creek behind our house. But I think you get the idea. This is the nature of sin. And this is what James warns us about in the nature of of sin, James says, you know, don't let anyone say he is tempted of God. Your temptation is is on you. You're you're the one responsible for giving into this temptation. And it grows and it gets stronger and it ultimately leads to death. So while your sin is small, cut that vine, uproot it. Because if you wait and you don't tend to it, it gets stronger and it gets thicker. And it is the uh, the nature of addiction I, uh, I used to work with um, mental health counseling and, and uh, people who specialized in addiction. And one man said something that I, I haven't forgotten, and that is we're, we're talking to students, uh, well, not students, but uh, like patients, um, teenagers mostly who have been already into drug use, alcohol use, um, and so on. And he told them, when you relapse, you're not going to relapse by degrees. You're going to go straight back to where you left off. And this is why you can't responsibly use or responsibly drink because you won't. You're going to fall right back into the, the very depth of where you, uh, where you left off. And so this is the nature of sin is that to relapse into it is to go back where you left off and not to slide in gradually. And Paul warns us about the works of the flesh and what are they? It's not a very happy list but it defines a lot of popular entertainment, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, um, let's see here, I wrote this very small, I'm sorry, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. I think you get the idea. And um, where it mentions idolatry here, sin is always a form of idolatry of some kind. And uh, where the Israelites had been 
entangled in the worship of false gods and the superstitions that arose in the worship of these gods, um, I was uh, wondering, you know, does, does anything like that happen today? And uh, Marcia and I were driving around from here to there yesterday, and I passed a sign that was advertising an astrologer who does card readings and sells amulets, you know, good luck charms to protect you from evil spirits. And I thought, wow, uh, guess what I'm studying here? <laughs> and this is uh, exactly the kind of thing that the Israelites would have uh, gotten wrapped up in, in their worship of the Baals, their worship of Ashtaroth, their worship of Dagon, the worship of all of these other uh, false deities. So whatever that sin is, whatever that idol is, you need to cut the vine while it's short, while it's weak. And who doesn't struggle with sin? I want you to uh, go with me to Romans chapter 7. And we read Paul being very honest and very open about himself. This isn't Paul the fresh convert. This is Paul, a, a very learned man biblically, uh, one who has memorized uh, lengthy passages of the Old Testament, perhaps the entire book, um, one who is educated in the scriptures, one who at this point has been a church planter and a missionary, uh, a, a Christian with a tremendous amount of experience behind him. And at this stage in his life, he says in Romans seven nineteen. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then we read down in verse 24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I tell you, uh, Romans chapter, uh, the book of Romans would be a very, very depressing book if it ended at chapter 7. But did you know it goes on into chapter 8? And we read so much in there. I would uh, encourage you to read chapter 7 and chapter 8 back to back and see Paul as he focuses on himself and his failings and his despair over his failings and the reassurance he has and the joy he has in seeing how Christ has met every shortcoming that he suffers from. So among the things we read in Romans 8 is this, picking up in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And the good news is just beginning in chapter 8 as we finally read that we are inseparably united to Christ, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. So for the believer... You are a new creature, says 2 Corinthians 5.17, and you already possess the power to repent and to overcome sin. If you are an unbeliever, you are without the Holy Spirit, you are without Christ, you are without power to overcome sin, and you are without hope. But 2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us now is the day of salvation. 
God is reaching down to you in Christ, will you reach up and accept that gift of salvation? And I want to close with uh, a look here at James. So go with me to uh, James chapter 1. And we'll finish up here where James says this, chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I would urge you, as I remind myself, to look into that mirror of God's word. And as you and I look into it, let us not walk away unchanged. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for the examples of the past. And in a way, thank you that their failings are so much like ours. And yet in their failings, we see your mercy. And we see your undeserved goodness. We thank you for Jesus who took the blame for all that we did wrong, who gives us credit for all that we did right. And Lord, it is our prayer that we would persevere in righteousness. And for any who don't know you, that you would draw them to you and let them know that blessed hope, that deliverance from sin for the first time. And we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.